0: Pracing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell.
1: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz.
0: And I'm Andrew Mitchell.
1: And lots and lots of things are going on in technology, as always. Facebook is still writhing around trying to launch their metaverse. I've got a few more observations on the whole Facebook saga. And this week, there's a huge party in New York City for NFTs, non-fungible tokens, I mean, a year a year ago, who would have thought we'd be talking about non-fungible tokens? I never really used the word fungible very much, but now it's it's in my vocabulary all the time. Yeah, you
0: put the fun in fungible.
1: We put the fun in fungible, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, this week is going to be all things cryptocurrency. We... We've been trying to get it to some crypto cryptocurrency stories, and we kept pushing them off, so I decided, let's just devote most of the show to cryptocurrency. So this week, we're going to feature the man who invented uh, Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. Of course, we don't really know if he's a man, if he's a woman, or if he exists, but we're going to talk about Satoshi Nakamoto and how he created Bitcoin. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Doug in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, every time I check for new Windows updates on my Windows 10 Lenovo laptop, it tells me that there are a couple of driver updates available as optional updates. Should I go ahead and let windows install those optional updates or should I just skip them? Doug and Kilmarnock. Well, Doug, the short answer to the question is I don't recommend installing those optional updates via the windows updates tool for the following reasons. Uh, it's best to leave system, uh, hardware drivers alone, unless, unless there's a problem. I mean, if you don't need to update a driver to fix a problem, um, it's better just to leave it alone. Bad driver updates can cause problems in their own right that didn't exist before you did the update. Now, the drivers that Microsoft makes available via the Windows Update tool are sometimes older than the ones that are already installed. What's more, they can be buggy at times as well. When a driver update is really necessary, uh, the best place to install it is from the support section of the hardware manufacturer's website device. So skip any update drivers that Microsoft has called o- optional. By the way, <clears throat> if there's a driver that really has to be installed and is critical, uh, Microsoft won't make it optional. They'll just put it in the install bundle.
0: Doc, do you you, you feel that, um, uh, you know, optional is always like across the board? Is that something we would generally want to skip no matter what prompt we're getting? If it's optional, maybe it's best not to do something?
1: Yeah, I mean, what they do is that uh, there may be cases where that update makes sense. But but in most cases it doesn't, so they just make it optional. Yeah, so I just I just basically skip the optional ones <clears throat> because if if they if they were really uh, uh, really needed, they would be put in the the, the baseline bundle. And I, and I'll tell you, over the years, I have uh, you know because I I always like to update things. That's sort of what I've and I and I've done some driver updates that have actually created problems for me, and I and I had to. Undo the driver update and install the previous driver to get it working. Yeah, I mean, typically um, you only have driver updates if the if the underlying hardware has changed, and uh, and that and that rarely happens in a um, you know in in, in, a, in a Windows machine or if the manufacturer has released a, um, a, a a a critical update. So so I typically skip it. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Andrew. Um, is it safe to leave a laptop running while it's in the laptop bag? This this sounds like
0: I already know the answer. It sounds like, (laughs) go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is this. I think, I think I've been over this before. Yeah. You know, I, I frequently work on my stuff at the last minute. I just pop down the lid, leave the computer running. And then I hop to work, go to work, uh, put it, throw it in the car and go to work. Um, She says it's a bad idea to carry it while it's uh, running. Uh, Is she right? Love the show, Lily and Fairfax. Well, uh, Lily, your uh, coworker is right. The damage done to internal components can be gradual. For one thing, if you, if you leave your laptop on, put it in the laptop bag, the, you know, the control, the, um, the um, exhaust vents that are on the bottom of the laptop are blocked and your laptop can run hotter and it could gradually overheat. Now, now, the, the failure for overheated components is gradual, but they'll eventually fail at, at one point. Now, another danger of using the laptop on the move is the potential of a head crash because you see when you turn off the laptop, the head is put in a rest so that it's very securely um, held so in case you jolt the laptop, it doesn't move around. The head, which reads the hard drive, is literally just... Uh, uh, you know, a very small distance. It actually rides on a cushion of air, almost uh, above the magnetic surface. So if you leave it running, the head is not actually held securely, and you could hit a bump, and that head could go down and crash into the into the magnetic material and damage the hard drive. And so, uh, and so, it's really not um, not not a good thing to do. Now, if you've got a solid-state hard drive, you don't have that problem. But you got the old traditional spinning drive. That is a problem. So, so why take a chance? Just uh, just turn off your laptop when you go to work. By the way, you can set up your laptop to automatically sh- uh, shut down when you close the lid. So just go into your power settings and set it up so when you flop down the lid, it'll turn off, and then you'll be you'll be good to go. That's probably the best of both options for you. So, though.
0: Doc, is this still true though? If it's in sleep mode, which is a lot, what happens a lot when you when you close the lid? Um, is that still on and is still dangerous? All the things you just said are still uh, are still so a problem. So it goes
1: into sleep mode. It, well, it's still it, it is actually it's using less power, but it's still using power. Mm-hmm. So in sleep mode, yeah, it's still it could still heat up. You're just better off if you're going to put it in a in a in a laptop bag without any ventilation at all. You're better off turning it off. Right. Even in even in the even in the sleep now now the sleep mode does use less power. Um, but, uh, I don't know even in sleep mode, whether the, the hard drive, that's a good question whether the hard drive is locked in position. Uh, it, it may be, I'd, I'd have to check on that. So, cause you don't hear it is, whirring. Is I mean, you, you don't hear a, the, mode, yeah,
0: you don't hear the computer whirring. So I'm wondering if it's actually, it stops the hard drive at that point, but we'll, well have, we'll look makes, into it. But at any rate, yeah, we'll, it's not a good yeah, idea we'll either that, way. That was
1: a very good question. Yeah. We'll, we'll check. On yeah. The sleep yeah.
0: Mode. Okay.
1: We got an email from Tracy in Ashburn. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've heard so much about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I'd like to give it a try. Oh, hold
0: on, Doc. Did you say cryptocurrency?
1: Yeah. It's so crypto, man. Oh, we got a song for the that, oh, that, Doc. Cryptocurrency oh, yeah. song. I yeah, hope it,
0: the he Yeah, you know, he just stuff said stuff it's the official crypto crypto cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency song. It, it's not. I don't know what official means. It sounds more like it's crowdsourced, if you ask me. Yeah.
1: Look at the cryptocurrency, man. It's such a blur. It's a new one every day. Oh, that's what Tracy Oh, yeah. The dance at the dance party. Yeah, <laughs> 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 the dance party. <laughs> Oh, we got our the old crypto, reggae band the at the dad's party, party. <laughs> yeah yeah this, well <laughs> selecting the right uh crisp you know you've got to select the right crypto exchange now the crypto exchange uh, you know they've got built-in security they've got ease of use they've got trading fees how many different crypto coins are available those are all the factors when you when you pick your uh, pick your exchanges and you really do want an exchange because it's it's more secure. I mean technically you could just create a wallet and you could do transfer in a transfer out, but the wallet has no user interface. So if you like forget your password to your wallet, you've lost your cryptocurrency. You've heard cases of that. But with the exchange you can actually reset your password, go through identification. So there's that's it's it's a much more uh, robust way for a beginner to do it. So I'll give there are five different um, crypto exchanges that are not bad. You've got Coinbase, which is one of the most popular. I kind of like Coinbase. I've been using Coinbase. They've been around since 2012. It's got a very user-friendly interface. It's really easy to set up. It's a straightforward onboarding process. And they give you uh, $5 if you take some tutorials on, uh, on different crypto subjects. And you get $5 in Bitcoin just for um, opening the account. So it's, it's great for new traders. And then they've got the Coinbase Pro. Once you get better and you want to deal with things like options or you want to have cutoffs where you automatically sell or automatically buy, Coinbase won't do that, but Coinbase Pro will do that. And uh, Coinbase Pro, the, the fees are just uh, uh, slightly less than they are in the baseline Coinbase. Now, the biggest exchange is Binance. B-I-N-A-N-C-E, in terms of trading volume, it's the biggest. It's been around for only four years, and it's just taken the crypto market by storm. It's based out of Hong Kong. It's an international exchange that supports more than 500 cryptocurrencies. The website's very intuitive and straightforward. They've got low trading fees. they got really good charting tools, and they got an easy-to-use app. Uh, Binance has become one of the largest cryptocurrencies in the world. It actually has probably four times the trading volume of Coinbase. I just like the, the user interface on Coinbase. Now Robinhood has, as um, is out there. It's uh, it's easy to use. It has very low fees in 2018. Robinhood began to re- roll out cryptocurrency trading. And with the company's mobile first mindset, they build an incre- incredibly easy to use app with no fees or trading barriers. It was. It's actually a actually a pretty good one. I I played around with Robinhood. I liked it. You heard you they they, they you probably heard people traders were using Robinhood to to, to trade GameStop. They were they, they were trying to short the uh, they, they were they were they were trying to short they, they had the, the sellers that were selling short, and so they were driving up the <laughs> driving up the um, the um, the price of GameStop in order to uh, stick it to the short sellers. So that they were in trading the, in
0: securities, though, right? Not cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah. Rob, so Robinhood, Robinhood is, is a
0: regular securities exchange, and now they're doing
1: crypto. Yeah, they've added crypto. Yeah. Robinhood has both, and uh, and they and basically their exchange is uh, um, is I mean their their fees are almost free. So so it was very very low cost way to get into stock market trading. So they, th- those are those are three, and there's there's Gemini that was founded by the Winkle Voss twins. Remember those uh, who that, remembers them? Got, got the whole point is they're forgotten.
0: Facebook. Exactly. <laughs> so
1: poor Forgotten. Gemini was founded by the winklevoss twins in twenty fourteen. I mean it's it's okay. I just don't like the Winklevosses that much. So I don't use Gemini, but it's gotten good reviews. Uh and then there's Kraken. It's proven to be a, a pretty good it was started in twenty eleven. It's got ninety coins available. So those those are five of the top ones. Uh, if you're just going to try out, I'd try um, I'd try Coinbase. I mean, I, I the thing is, what you, what you have to do, what you got to be very careful about, uh, is that you've got to be very careful about the fact that the the cryptocurrency is very volatile. Tracy, I mean, let me let me tell you, let me, let me tell you a story that turned out okay, but in the beginning it it didn't. I was really worried. Somebody who I knew wanted to get into crypto trading, so I said, okay, get Coinbase. So they and, and I was, at that time, I, I thought Ethereum would really be quite good. I thought Ethereum's going to really go up quite well, given the fact that it's a good platform for distributed finance. So they they thought, okay, well, we'll uh, we'll put a little bit of money in this thing." So they put twenty thousand dollars in Ethereum on Coinbase. And then the next week, uh, Elon Musk said, well, he was going to kick Bitcoin out of the Tesla platform. They weren't gonna take Bitcoin. And he said, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they both use too much power. And then the, the next day, the Chinese said they're not gonna allow their banks to, to handle Bitcoin. And so, the next week, the $20,000 investment went down to $10,000. <laughs> and so, uh, and so that, was, that was a bit of a problem for me. And, but then what happened, Ethereum eventually turned around, and now that portfolio, after waiting about two months, it's now worth around twenty-five thousand dollars. Went from twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars. So, if you invest in crypto, you've got to be ready for a lot of volatility. Roller coaster, that would be my right? Only yes, advice.
0: yes. Much more so than in the stock market.
1: That's right. You, you know, and, and you don't, and you know, my feeling is, don't put money in crypto that you're not willing to lose, yeah. and then you won't. <laughs> And then you won't lose so, too much sleep.
0: Same rule as gambling uh, then. Absolutely the same right. as gambling. Yeah.
1: That's right. Well, there I think there's a long term bet in some of these, but you have to understand it. And and because the market is not really understood so well, there's a lot of emotion in the stock price. We got an email from John in Washington, DC. Dear Doc and Jim uh, dear Doc and uh, Andrew, I've been told that microwave ovens will interfere with my Wi-Fi router. Whoa, is that true? They must use the same frequency. Why in the world would anyone design these systems to use the same frequency? That seems like a bad idea. Well, um, John, my Wi-Fi and microwaves both operate in a similar frequency band. <clears throat> that can lead to interference, actually. In 1947, the International Telecommunications Union established the S Band. That's short for industrial, scientific, and medical, the IMS Band. The goal was to define uh, what devices would be allowed to run at certain bands of radio frequency so that they would not cause interference with other radio communication channels. ISM designed the 2.4 gigahertz band as an unlicensed spectrum, specifically at the time for microwave ovens. Now the band has three compelling properties: it does not require much broadcast, much energy to broadcast; it's easy to contain, and it's uh, and it's relatively uh, low power. That can be that uh, that is quite good, and it heats food. You see, it turns out 2.4 gigahertz is tuned to the water absorption band and microwave ovens heat up the water. Now, the problem, of course, is that then Wi-Fi came out and they said, well, there's this unlicensed band out there and they and they started with 2.4 gigahertz. So, so they started using 2.4 gigahertz. There's also another unlicensed band at 5.4 gigahertz, but it doesn't... Uh, it, it, it doesn't work for microwave as well. It's not tuned to the water absorption spectrum. Also, 5.4 gigahertz is, uh, is more absorbed by, by walls. So, but then the second Wi-Fi band was at, was at 5.4 gigahertz. So what probably is going on here? Your microwave oven probably has a small leak. Have you ever noticed there's like a screen in the front of it? It's supposed to contain all the microwaves. That are at 2.4 gigahertz. So you you might have a small leak in it, or there's a gasket around the door. You might have a small uh, some radiation leaking out of your microwave if you're getting interference. I mean, I mean microwaves generate a lot of power. I mean they 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 could be at a thousand watts power, and you know generating a lot of power. Whereas a Wi-Fi uh, router only generates 100 milliwatts. That's that's a tenth of a watt of power. So there's a big power differential. So my advice, if you're getting that interference, do not put your router near the, uh, near the microwave. Uh, that's what I would suggest. You might move the direction of the microwaves in case there's a leak in the front, and I would just sort of move the, move the two devices so they're far enough away from each other, and that will prevent any kind of uh, interference. Now, if you still, I mean, if your microwave is still just leaking a lot of power at 2.4 gigahertz get yourself a router and use the five gigahertz band. The five gigahertz band is completely outside of the microwave band. You won't have any problems at all. Uh, we got one email from Neha, a dear, a doc and Andrew. I travel by air frequently and always must turn off my cell phone, but I'm skeptical. The cell phones really interfere with aircraft electronics. Neha in Ashburn, Virginia. Well, Neha, the, um, They've really done studies on this thing, and they haven't found much much electronic interference. I, I actually think in the day, long, long ago, I think there may have been interference with some of the GPS systems long a long time ago, but that is long past. I, I had a friend who was a 747 pilot. He never turned off his cell phone, and he was up in the cockpit. They just basically don't like you to be using your your devices, and they always err on the side of, caution so they want you to turn it off plus they want
0: you to buy their (laughs) wi-fi
1: they want you to buy their wi-fi so 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 the fact is uh uh during takeoff when they're really hyperventilating about it i'll i'll turn mine off just just to keep uh you know so nobody's worried it's really for you know just just to be considerate of my neighbors but i don't don't really think it's um, it's necessary uh at all but um, you know, but I think this will continue for a good long while. I I actually don't think they like people talking on the phone during, uh, d- you know, during these. I think long they flights, want people
0: so. focused. They want the you know the seats in the upright position, the tables locked, and all of that. It's an attitude thing, I think, that they're trying That's to foster right. and, too. and they
1: and they don't like the uh, the fact that you that you're plugging your charger in, and you may get tangled up if you have to escape. Right. Right, you know, so they focused, so, yeah. I, so I think there are there are uh, I- issues there. I mean, uh, I mean, I do like um, um, you know, I do like to be able to make phone calls. So uh, so I'll go onto Wi-Fi and use Wi-Fi calling to make phone calls from the airplane.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, that is fun to do, but it it's sort of you know you you kind of have to talk low because people don't like you on the phone uh, you know, on an airplane flight.
0: That's true too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There, yeah, there was one flight that I did many years ago. I, I had to do tech talk, and I uh, and I was doing them remotely, and I was going to be on the flight during tech talk. So I did the entire tech talk radio show via satellite phone. Wow, you, re- remember these satellite phones? Yeah, that, uh, and so that was an interesting show because uh, when you talk on satellite phone, there's latency because you're going out to a uh, geosynchronous.
0: Right, satellite. it travels quite a distance. Yeah,
1: it travels quite a distance. So, so I had to be uh, be careful uh, in talking on that show. But I did the entire show via satellite phone, and and the phone bill was about three hundred dollars. <laughs>
0: well, that's not that bad actually, considering <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't that bad, <laughs> no. and it
1: made for an interesting radio show because I talked about how it works, when we did latency experiments during the show. So it was, oh, wow. it was an interesting show. That was, <laughs> that was back a long, long time ago when I was doing the show with David Berg. Oh, wow. Many, but, many,
0: many Doc, ago. I want to what? know how your your fellow passengers felt about you yakking away for an hour.
1: I, get, I, I All the people around me, what I did, I told them that I've got to do this radio show. I said, do you mind if I do this show? So the people behind me, in front of me, all around me, I told them about it. Before the show, and they said, "No, just go ahead and do it. It'll be it'll be something to talk about." So, uh, actually, the other passengers were extremely, extremely uh, forgiving.
0: Well that's but very I did nice. ask permission, yeah, well, you asked permission, and I think they were intrigued. you know it was a really cool. It wasn't just somebody yakking. you were actually doing a radio show. and I'm sure they found that interesting
1: talking about and then and then what happened? you know, and then when you come back down through the uh, when you're landing and you come through the ionis, there's you, you come through a certain zone where you you lose uh, connection. So I was talking about uh, uh, you know transmission at at different altitudes. so it was an interesting show, but, uh, but it was somewhat stressful to do it remotely. Mm. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at Talk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: And we're not done with the cryptocurrency topic. Who started Bitcoin? That's a bit of a mystery. We'll get uh, into that next, uh, right here on Tech Talk Radio.
2: Crypto's a real life. Fiat is fantasy. Transactions vary. By she banker activity, open source lines all decentralized to see. If it's technology, it's tech talk radio, IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
1: Satoshi Nakamoto is the name used by the person or persons who developed Bitcoin. So,
0: so this is a real gender, you know, we have, uh, we have to pay attention to gender pronouns now. This could be a he, she, it, or they, Satoshi Nakamoto.
1: That's right. We have no idea who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Now, he authored the original Bitcoin white paper, which, by the way, uh, I've got a link to it. I have a link to it in the, um, in the show notes. It's, you can go to bitcoin.org and you can get it. It's only eight pages long. It was actually eight to ten pages long. It's actually, it's actually quite readable. He authored that original white paper. And then once the white paper was published, he uh, released the Bitcoin's original um, code in open source format. And he set up the original Bitcoin exchange. Now Nakamoto was active in the development of Bitcoin up to up to about December of 2010. Now many people have claimed or have been claimed to be Nakamoto. Uh, Nakamoto stated that that work on writing the code began around 2007. Now in August 18th of, 20, of 2008, uh, Nakamoto or a colleague registered the domain name Bitcoin.org, and they created a website at that address. On August 31st, 2008, Nakamoto published the white paper on, cryptography, a, mailing, on a cryptography mailing list called Meltsdown.com and he he published the uh, he published the article on that mailing list titled bitcoin a peer to peer electronic cash system and the and, and now that that white paper is now is now posted on bitcoin.org now nakamoto was the first to solve the double spending problem for digital currency using a peer to peer network you see up to that point you'd have to have a third party verify the transaction. And they uh, that if, if you do transfer a, a, a digital asset, they would have to verify that that digital asset had not already been spent you know, to solve the double spending problem. And then once they verified that it had not been spent, then the transaction would go through. He did not want to have any centralized authority involved in the process. He wanted to be able to transfer value uh, directly from one person to another, peer to peer, without the intervention of a central authority. Now Nakamoto proposed a decentralized approach to transactions, and that ultimately uh, culminated in the creation of blockchains. Now blockchains are like distributed ledgers, and many say it's it's that's the real innovation here. This is the first time that we've had an improvement to Baseline accounting systems since double-entry accounting was established by the Medici's back in the 1600s. So the blockchain includes it includes time stamps for transactions, and it, it includes what the transaction was, who sold and and who bought, and it creates an entire a, a historical record of all transactions since the beginning of Bitcoin. That's the blockchain. Now, on uh, January of 2009, Nakamoto released version 0.1 of the Bitcoin software on SourceForge. And he launched the network by mining the first block in the blockchain. That's called the Genesis block, block number zero. And the reward for validating that block and providing the, um, the, the, um, the hash code that met the requirements was 50 bitcoins. Now, embedded in the first block, so you can go back because the, the whole block is public, so I went back and I looked at the first Genesis block, and it has, back on the right side, you've got a place for comments in the block, and he has in the comments section... The Times, January 3rd, 2019, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. He was referring to a headline in the UK newspaper, The Times, that was published on that date. I think he wanted to establish a time frame for the Genesis block. And he also demonstrated that he was worried that the banking system was not stable and that countries can just print money and then they then they bail themselves out
0: I, I just want to say one thing you you inadvertently said 2019 this is a lot older this was January oh, 2009. 2009 yeah yeah, yeah.
1: 2009 Jan, yeah January 3rd 2009 was the the article yeah now now the notes interpreted both as a timestamp stamp as well as a derisive comment about the instability of the fractional uh, reserves banking system. Now, Nakamoto continued to collaborate with other developers in the Bitcoin software until mid-2010. He made all the modifications of the source code himself. Now, he always collaborated uh, remotely by email. He never revealed who he was in this collaboration. Then in the mid-2010, he gave control of the source code repository and network alert key to Gavin Anderson and transferred several related domains to various prominent members of the Bitcoin community. See, it was an open source code community, so he was developing, a, a, built a community of open source coders that were interested in cryptocurrency. And then he stopped his involvement in the project. See, the here's movie.
0: the thing. We don't know, um, but I would say one possible clue here is that maybe at that time he received a diagnosis or something. He something a life changing event happened to him where he just actually retired. He actually moved out of this project.
1: It it could very well be, and he and he never wanted to. He wanted Bitcoin to stand on its own. He didn't want it to be he didn't want it to depend on any single person. So by design, he, he made it so that it didn't didn't depend on him. Now he never revealed any personal information when discussing technical matters, uh, though at times he provided a lot of commentary on the banking and reserve system. On his peer-to-peer foundation profile, P2p foundation profile in 2012, Nakamoto claimed to be a 37-year-old male who lived in Japan. However, some speculated he's unlikely to be Japanese due due to his uh, high level of English and that his Bitcoin software was not being documented or labeled in Japanese. Also, he used British English in uh, in many of his comments and forum postings, such as the expression, bloody hard or flat for an apartment or mass, or the spelling of gray, G-R-E-Y, or the spelling of color, C-O-L-O-U-R. So this leads to the speculation that Nakamoto at least had one individual, at least one individual on the development team was British, or had, was Commonwealth origin. Now the reference to the London Times newspaper article in the first, in the genesis block, suggested that he had an interest in the British government. Now, Stefan Thomas, a Swiss software engineer and active community member, graphed the timestamps for each of Nakamoto's Bitcoin forum posts, more than 500 actually, and the chart showed a steep decline of almost no posts between 5 a.m. and 11 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Now, this is between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Japanese Standard Time, so it doesn't look like he was really resident in Japan given the time frame Given the the, the timestamps on his uh, on his postings. Now by analy because now the you know the blockchain is public, and they can identify the wallet that was owned by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto because the original bitcoins were transferred to that wallet, uh, it looks like that enough Bitcoin transferred to Nakamoto's wallet that he he would have a value in Bitcoin of $50 billion if he had cashed in all of his Bitcoin. Now, that's about 5% of the total Bitcoins. He's got about a million Bitcoins. Now, the maximum number of Bitcoins that can ever be mined is 21 million. We're going to reach that 21 million point around 2040. At this point, around 18 million have been mined. So, uh, so he's got a, uh, he has got a large stake in this thing. Now, Bitcoin recently has just shot up. It it reached a peak of sixty-five thousand. Now it's dipped down a little bit. It reached that peak of sixty-five thousand when it was announced that the, an, an ETF was launching, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, that was launched in the U.S. And when that launched, Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies just just shot. You way know, up. you've
0: you've reached the establishment in uh, in uh, the financial world once you have an ETF built around you.
1: That's exactly that, uh, right. And,
0: uh, you've arrived. Um,
1: and so the, the Canadians had the first ETF, and then finally the, uh, the, uh, the FTC allowed us to get, a, uh, get one in the, in, in the U.S. Now, nobody really knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is, and, and so there's, there's been a lot of speculation. Now, Hal Finney is, uh, is one guy who, they, who they've speculated. Now, he, wa- he was in the cyberpunk movement, and and uh, and this the, these these are guys that that, uh, that were trying to figure out cyber technology back in the day, and it was sort of a sort of a uh, sort of an, a, a de facto group of renegades. And, and he was a he was a leader in the cyberpunk movement. These guys didn't trust central authority. Now Hal Finney died in 2014. Uh, this sort of fits the case. He was the first person to receive a Bitcoin transition. Tra- uh, tra- uh, trans- transfer from Sakamoto, because they can look at Hal Finney's wallet, and they can see that he received the first Bitcoin transfer from Sakamoto's wallet. It, and Sakamoto, of course, earned his Bitcoin when he, when he was mining mining the original blockchains.
0: Is this pretty strong evidence right there, that one piece of information about the first it, Bitcoin
1: it is pretty strong information and I mean, it's and not conclusive blocks, but
0: it really is strong. Yeah.
1: Here here's something else a few blocks from how finney is this japanese guy whose name is Dorian Sakamoto Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah. <laughs> and so he he lives a few a few doors from him and uh, so many think that finney was actually the guy and he and the and the name Satoshi Nakamoto came from his neighbor,
0: Dorian Nakamoto. By his
1: neighbor's name,
0: yeah. Now, Dorian? Who is also one of our possible candidates?
1: That's right. So now other people think it's Dorian Nakamoto. They think he's the guy. He's an academic. He's an engineer from California. And Leah McGrath named him as the creator of Bitcoin in a Newsweek article on 2014. It's the 64-year-old Japanese. American man, now whose name is really Dor. His name is really Satoshi Nakamoto, but he changed it to Dorian Nakamoto because he didn't he, he didn't want to have this linkage. Now people have talked to him, and he's just been rolled out. He had he had no interest in uh, in cryptocurrency at all. I think he was actually I think he was just a neighbor of Hal Finney.
0: Which is and still so he's, he's pointing toward Finney. Now. I'm still voting for Finney here, putting my Bitcoin on it.
1: That's right. And then we've got the third guy that was very heavily considered was Nick Zabo. Now, like Vinny, Zabo was an early cyberpunk uh, enthusiast, and he was friends with many in that inner circle. In 1998, Zabo designed a mechanism for decentralized concerns. called BitGold.
0: By the way, 1998, that's a whole decade before this Bitcoin thing got started. He was way ahead of the curve. Yeah, Yeah. 1998.
1: He designed Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin Bitcoin. was never implemented, but it's been called a direct precursor. I mean, Bitgold was never implemented, but it's been a a precursor to Bitcoin. So so people thought, you know, Nick Zabo may be the guy because he's got a history here. So no one has ever really, and both Zabo and Finney have denied being uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. So it could be that Finney and Zabo worked together as a team, and they had the pseudonym, Satoshi Nakamoto, or one or the other worked alone, and nobody is talking. So we really don't know. But uh, Hal Finney, who died in 2014, I mean, if I had to guess, I I, I think I would guess him too, but nobody really knows. So there you go. Everything you'd ever want to know about Satoshi and Nakamoto. Or
0: maybe more to the point, everything we have to admit we don't know about Satoshi and Nakamoto. Tech Talk continues in a moment. Bitcoin girl, she doesn't care that I can buy her pearls. But maybe someday when my public she creates a brand new cryptocurrency, she'll pick me.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio, IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. So we've been talking about Bitcoin and um, all things crypto, but let's sort of look at where the field is going and what we could expect going into the future. Now, Bitcoin, of course, is the gold standard, but we got the two kids, uh, Ethereum and Cardano, and they're both going strong. So... In the end, uh, which of these kids is a better investment, Does, or is Bitcoin a better investment?
0: Yeah, I mean, are you ruling out Bitcoin in at this point? No,
1: Bitcoin is Bitcoin is there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, a bit, and so it's uh, Bitcoin is sort of the established one. It's been accepted by the traditional finance system, and so it's uh, it's going to it's going to continue strong for a while as an investment. But uh, Ethereum is one of the biggest names in the crypto industry right now. Its native token, Ether, is the second most popular cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Now, the Ethereum Foundation was led by Vitalik Buterin, the Pied Piper of crypto. Now, the Ethereum blockchain is one of the most widely used when it comes to decentralized applications, like distributed application dApps, as they say. It's also the blockchain of choice for non-fungible tokens as well as for distributed finance. Now the reason that the Ethereum blockchain is so useful is that Vitalik Buterin built on top of the blockchain a scripting language. So you can write applications that do things and they take advantage of the uh, underlying blockchain structure of a, of Ethereum to track transactions, so you can do things like smart contracts that execute themselves when all the conditions are met. So Ethereum can actually do things, can actually be applied to things like supply chain management or like artwork provenance. On the other hand, Bitcoin can only do one thing, it can just transfer a Bitcoin. It's a it's a blockchain that has one purpose and one purpose only to track the transfer of bitcoins. So bitcoin was really a proof of principle, um, uh, a proof of principle blockchain that proved, in fact, the principle is right. Ethereum is trying to do something with blockchains. So there are people who believe that the long term demand for ether in the Ethereum network is going to grow as applications on the Ethereum network grow. Now, one of the problems with the Ethereum network currently is that it uses the same proof of work that Bitcoin uses. And what happens is that when a miner uh, validates a new block of transactions, they've got to do this calculation That is very difficult to do and takes a long time. They basically have to create a a hash value using the SHA-256 algorithm. And they have to get a hash value that is smaller than a certain target number. And the the algorithm keeps making the target number adjust the value of the target number to make the hash more and more difficult. So they want to keep the average transaction time to about 10 minutes. So it takes about 10 minutes to solve the puzzle. Um, But this proof of work really slows down the network. And so Ethereum, I mean, I I created an NFT on Ethereum and I, I had about a five minute delay one time and it was just really slow. So that is one of the problems. Now, Ethereum is coming out with Proof of Stake uh, validation uh, in mid 2022, and that's going to totally transform the Ethereum, uh, you know, the Ethereum, the underlying Ethereum network, and they'll be able to operate quite, quite, quite well. Now, there is a, there was a guy who was part of the original Ethereum team, uh, Charles Hoskinson. They kicked him out because they kicked him out because he he wanted He he didn't like this four. This nonprofit approach. He want he wanted to make money. He wanted to basically get VCs and develop a whole new blockchain with VC support, and and so he could make money. So they kicked him out. You know, Vitalik Buterin didn't like that approach, and so uh, and so Charles started a uh, another blockchain, Cardano, with the uh, with their um, their uh, ADA. ADA is their is their cryptocurrency. Now. Cardano also has a scripting language on top, like Ethereum, but it was built to scale. It was built to scale. They they have the proof of stake uh, validation process, which is very big. They actually have a, a, they actually have developed a code development uh, method, much like the Internet code development with the Internet Engineering Task Force, where people review it. They review the code. They and they've got a team of people working on code standards. He thinks there need to be underlying standards on it. So he's been building systematically a very robust network that can can handle distributed transactions. So if you listen to Charles talk about it, Bitcoin was generation one. It was a blockchain that could only do Bitcoin. Ethereum is generation two. It was a blockchain that could actually do things, but it wasn't scalable. He says that, Charles says, that Cardano is a third-generation blockchain. It's a blockchain that can do something, but which is also scalable. So now if you're going to invest in it, what would you do? Uh, right now, Ethereum is, uh, is is the darling of the investors, and the uh, Ethereum is is really... Going through the roof these days, it's it's going up quite well, and I think when that when their proof of stake network comes out uh, in 2022, it's going to just really start moving up quickly. Uh, Bitcoin is going to continue going up because it, it's it's limited to 21 million coins. We're at 18 million dollars, there's scarcity there. So I, I, as an investment vehicle, Bitcoin is is certainly. Certainly there, but there's going to be demand on the Ethereum network. Now Cardano is sort of the new kid on the block. It earlier in the year it just was shooting up and then it uh, and then it just stopped going up. So it's it's sort of stagnant now. So my feeling is that uh, I mean Bitcoin is is certainly the investment now. I think the investment in the near term, is going to be Ethereum. I think the long-term investment is going to be Cardano because the value of the coin, of the crypto coin, depends on usage on the network. And if there's more demand on the network, the coin is going to go up. Cardano's market cap, by the way, is $67 billion. And Ethereum's market cap is $274 billion. So Cardano is growing quite well. I think the real important thing on these networks is... uh, is whether they can do something useful and whether they can do something other than just trade currency. And both Ethereum and, Card- and Cardano can do something beyond that. So there you go. The new kid's on the block, and there's going to be a lot of interesting thing in cryptocurrency.
0: Well, Doc, we got about uh, eight, and a half, uh, eight minutes left. Uh, maybe we keep going?
1: Okay, let's keep going. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep going. Let's talk about uh, – the nft party in new york i think we'll skip the trivia given the time
0: oh that's too bad but okay a which, party which in new york city is always a good do? thing what, to talk about
1: oh, oh let's do that let's do the oldest verified computer program <laughs> oh, yeah cuz
0: we have we have promised that for like a month now
1: the oldest verified computer program let's just do that yeah, okay. know, we can we, okay. we we can get to everything yeah okay so the oldest verified computer program in use is used for managing okay you might guess it. It's a government contract. Yeah. It, it's it's a government program. It's used for managing the U.S. Department of Defense contracts. It was first brought online in 1958. Wow. It's uh, it's called the Mechanization of Contract Administration Services, MOCAS. M O C A S. MOCAS MOCAST has for decades served as the hub of the Department of Defense's contract tracking. It was written, okay, as you would expect in COBOL. This was the original uh, business language that that had been developed right after FORTRAN, Uh, uh, and it's it's received numerous upgrades over the years in terms of its interface. It was originally controlled by punch cards, and then they had CRT terminal, cathode ray terminals, cathode ray terminals, and now it's buried beneath a layer of web interfaces and graphical user interfaces. And it's uh, underneath all those interfaces, it's basically the exact program that was brought online to handle Cold War era contracts. Now, now why in the world is this software so long alive? Why? Surely there are more modern systems that the department could use. The biggest impediment to upgrade is simply the amount of data the software handles. And the confusion that it would throw into the daily operations of the department if they replaced it. MOCAS handles 340,000 contracts at any given time, totaling over a trillion dollars in obligations. Transitioning old contracts or even simply starting all new contracts in a newer system creates a mess that the department simply isn't willing to deal with. So they just keep moving along. With the oldest verified computer program in use.
0: But it, it still works, right? And so, this is another works. reason yeah. to keep it. I mean, it still works. It's the pride of the Eisenhower administration, but it still
1: works. <laughs> it still works. <laughs> yeah. They're, 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 yeah, so why, why break what. Right. What, what if it ain't broke, what, man,
0: don't fix it.
1: That's right. And it made it through. You see, all these old COBOL systems had the 2000 year bug in them that they only had two digits used for, for dates, and so we went from 1999 to 2000. They were worried that it would, everything would revert back to 1900 instead of the 2000. So they managed to get COBOL programmers in there to fix the 2000. So that was glitch. one of the
0: few instances where there really was a Y2K problem because for That's the most right. part that problem did not actually exist. People over overestimated it.
1: They overestimated it, and then people went in and fixed it. So, so there you go. It's uh, it, it 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 it's still it's still in use, still in active use, and people really do like it. <laughs> it's great. Now, now let's talk about this.
0: Oh yeah, party, big in, New party in New York City. Party in New York. Yeah, let's now. head over to New York.
1: Yeah, we're gonna head over to New York. New York had a coming out party for NFTs. Now, nine months ago, hardly anybody knew what an NFT was, non-fungible token. Now they've taken over time, Times Square. They had a party back in 2019, and 460 attendees showed up. This year, 5,000 people attended the NFT party in New York. There, there were more than 600 speakers, and uh, and they were displays all over the place. They... Um, you know NFTs. You know you can understand them in the art world. They're like certificates of authenticity, but they're but you can track uh, you can track uh, transfers of the NFTs, so you can you can establish provenance of the artwork. Now, now many people first heard of NFTs back uh, back earlier this year when an artist known as Beeple sold an NFT for sixty nine million dollars. Now. Anyone can download an exact copy of that digital artwork down to all the zeros and ones. And the artwork is basically available for free. But the piece of art linked to the NFT, which transferred directly from Beeple, had a value of $69 million because the NFT gave the digital image scarcity. And that's what the art world loves. Now, it's sort of just like the Mona Lisa. I mean, every time somebody puts a new picture of a Mona Lisa on a T-shirt, it does not reduce the value of the original Mona Lisa in the Louvre.
0: This is a so, really good way of thinking about it, by the way, the scarcity principle, because it's been yeah, in, in in practice all along.
1: It is. There's, there's really, it's really not. It, this is the digital take on something that's been around for a long time. Now, now not everybody likes NFTs. Now, now here's one problem they're not regulated so you really don't know what people are doing under the hood there's no regulation at all so i think the whole crypto area the whole nft area is going to have to have some degree of regulation just like they're they're regulating wall street so you don't have insider trading for instance i think that is going to be an important important thing that's going to that's going to happen i see right now nfts and um uh, and all this digital currency it's like the wild west it's got all this potential but all these operators here
0: here's my question though isn't certainty sort of built into it right now too though in in that it is not reproducible and it is not you cannot change it It is non-fungible that's the whole point so doesn't that give it security or it's not enough
1: yeah the 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 blockchain does does provide some some degree of uh, of security for it yeah but it's but it's uh, OK. So here's the problem with with regulation. Uh, there were some of these, uh, say, Bitcoin exchanges where all the money disappeared. And and the guy that owned it just just left. So uh, and so they, they, they they're worried about security more than just the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Listen, we, uh, we we love your emails. Email us at uh, stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Then, uh, no, email, yeah, Tech Talk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as, as soon as we can. Then also go to the Stratford University website. Check out our programs on the website and let them know that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.